There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Welcome to today's episode of Nuance. I'm Case Thorpe. Uh, if you would like and subscribe our video today, however you're getting it, or if it's a podcast version, really helps a make a big difference. So uh, friends, it's a new day for the collaborative. We've gone through some transition and very excited for the next steps in this ministry, widening our focus a bit from faith and work out to cultural renewal. But faith and work is certainly still a, a vital and important part of our work and our uh, impact in the public square. And that's our aim on this podcast is to help Christian professionals uh, make an impact where they are out in the world. Uh, so nuance has been nuanced a bit. Rather than go the seasonal route, uh, we're going to hit in a biweekly fashion every other week uh, thought leaders. We're going to have guests who are experts and um, people very, very thoughtful about faith and life, about leading in their industries, in their companies, uh, those who are pursuing the common good. Uh, we're also adding to our rotation of content a new program, a, a nuanced branded program called Formed for Faithfulness. Spiritual formation is so very important and a part of our growth as Christ followers. And so these 10-minute episodes will be released weekly following the liturgical calendar of the Christian year, and I um, encourage you to watch for those, and may they help be a blessing on your heart. Now, that's a great lead-in to today's guest, because uh, I have recognized the value of spiritual formation in the discipleship process, and our two guests today very much reflect that and teach that. So I'd like to welcome Catherine Leary Alsdorf and Yvonne Sawyer. Uh, thanks so much, friends, for being here today. Our pleasure. Our topic today is on Tim Keller, the pastor, academician, a great philosopher of the age out of New York City that planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church, went on to be so very successful in its growth and its impact. He authored quite a number of books and was picked up by the national media and other environments because his voice was so clear and so resonant on uh, what it means to be a Christ follower, who God is, and how we make a difference. And he passed away earlier this year. In fact, I pulled this out. If you're watching visually, you can see this is uh, the bulletin from his funeral. And I know Catherine and Yvonne were both there. My goodness, what a powerful time that that, that was. And I have appreciated reading so much about Tim Keller's impact, his legacy, his uh, leading voice and really sort of creating the faith and work movement, his investment in church planting and how even his greater denomination, even mine, have been so inspired and, and guided by his convictions and his theology. Well, I wanted to ask Catherine and Yvonne to come and let's look a little bit behind the curtain and about Tim Keller, the man. In some ways, we can hero worship folks, uh, but, you know, he put his pants on the same way as everybody else. He was a, a dad and a husband and a colleague and a friend. And so I thought, who better to have come and be with us but these two fine individuals? 
So um, I know your great bios, but I'd love to have you tell us, Catherine and Yvonne, just give us a quick summary of who you are and how your journey through the years with Tim uh, overlapped. Catherine? I think Yvonne should start. She met him first. <laughs> ah, okay. okay. Go, Yvonne. Okay. Well, I moved to New York like practically everyone else for professional success. Um, I came with a book contract and a job in marketing and very quickly got connected to the church because I knew as a believer, the first thing you do is find a church and find connection. It was the coldest December in 40 years. <laughs> My new apartment was three blocks away from Redeemer. So when I started visiting, I never went anywhere else. What year so was that, this? Maybe you said already. 1989. Okay. Yeah. So Redeemer had just gotten started for a few months, but my wild dream of moving to New York fell apart within a very short period of time. So when Keller got up on a Sunday right before Christmas and said, well, we've grown enough to open an office. I said, okay, let me find out about this job because I needed to pay the rent. Ah, so and help me. Was it meeting in an apartment at the time or in a, a public No, space? it was at the Church of the Advent Hope. The, um, okay. I believe the first morning service was September of 89. I moved there in, in November. So okay. it was already going in a, a church building. And so what was the particular job opportunity that attracted you in the office? They just needed to open an office. Ah, I see. And I had had lots of administrative office skills and a, and a ministry background. So although this was definitely a redirection of my career, mm. at the same token, I was like, okay, let's do it. Let's interview. Okay, so you served in that role. And then eventually you were tapped and you led the building out of Hope for New York. Correct. That was one of Tim's core values. When he was coming to plant the church in New York City, talking to New Yorkers, he saw this was something New Yorkers were really concerned about. He had written that Ministries of Mercy book for the denomination. So he was feeling from his research, this was going to be a core part of what the church was going to do. And the this, the thing New Yorkers were concerned about, Exactly. Name that for me. Serving the poor, serving the marginalized, volunteering, community service, ministries of mercy, whichever yeah. phrase you choose. Okay. And so you uh, got that up and running, which my goodness is a tremendous work. Uh, uh, tell us today where Hope for New York is in terms of its reach. Um, well, I, I'm not as in touch with them as as I probably should be, but I know that they've grown exponentially having all kinds of ministries that they're interacting with, both raising money, helping to um, recruit volunteers, connecting those ministries of mercy to professionals who could help mm. them build their capacity too, which mm -hmm, was one mm -hmm. of the core values initially when we got the thing started. And then they sent you as a missionary to Miami. <laughs> Not exactly. That was my own mission. Ah. Um, I always wanted to have a family and I met this pastor who came to one of the Redeemer weekends and moved to Miami because it was easier to move me than he and his five children. Ah, my goodness. 
So you instantly <laughs> became a mother of five children. Yeah. God bless you. Wow. And wow. started Hope for Miami. Right. Yeah. <laughs> How did that come about? Was it with your husband and through y'all's church? Um, not through the church. Again, I didn't have a redeemer in Miami. Uh, yeah. So we had to start from scratch with a slightly different model. And that brings me to one of the core things that I think Tim taught us is that contextualization of mm. the city where God places you sure. is very, very key. Very so key. Very key. hope for Miami is different than hope for New York. But there's obviously some similarities of serving God with community or, or mercy ministry. Well, when I first met Catherine, who uh, has been such a great friend and mentor for the growth of the collaborative and our Gotham Fellowship, uh, I remember she made the point, Catherine, this was at Princeton during one of the training sessions, that New York's weird. It's strange. It's different. Please do not go and try to create a cookie cutter replication yeah. of what we're doing here in New York. Rather, to your point, Yvonne, that Tim encouraged, mm -hmm. what's your context? What's your environment, your situation? Mm -hmm. And I thought that was so important. Mm -hmm. And so, Yvonne, now you are in Asheville. And uh, what season of life? What are your uh, what's your life look like? Well, we're pandemic refugees, like lots of people. Sure. Um, figuring out that we could work remotely. So I'm still on the team at Hope for Hope for Miami, but looking forward to the full transition to the whatever next step God has for me. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. So Catherine, tell us about your journey. Yeah, I think I um, connected to Redeemer about the same time, December or the fall of 1989, but I was not a believer and became a believer in the first um, three years of Redeemer's meeting. So I went to the church and usually walked out angry. Yvonne went to the church and said, this is my home. So I, I wrestled and struggled. Um, but one of the stories I wanted to tell about Tim was um, at that time, he really, uh, I just can't imagine a pastor working harder to meet individually and talk to the people that were coming. People like Yvonne, who were committed and um, maybe more mature believers, and people like me who were 100% skeptics. So um, he, he, worked, he met with people day in and day out. And uh, my first meeting with him was filled with questions like, well, how can people really believe in, you know, intelligent people really believe in hell? Uh, isn't that just a carrot to get people to be good, well-behaved people? And, you know, I pummeled him with questions like that. And he responded in a way that um, I can't imagine a better response for someone like me. He said, you know, Catherine, I really don't think you should be worrying about all that. Just stop and let, listen to God and be open to what he's doing in your life. Mm. And I thought, okay, I can do that. That's, that's <laughs> not so hard. <laughs> if he's not doing anything, we walk away. If he is, Okay. And I think that was echoed even in his sermons for the first decade, probably. He, mm. he would always address the person like me in the pew that um, was sitting there judging every word that he said. And he would say something along the lines of, 
you know, if this is um, not resonating with you, just be still and say, all right, God, if you're real, show me, open my eyes to see it. And I thought I could do that too. So um, his, his focus, and I think the excitement of the people in the congregation at that time was that um, people who didn't believe were coming, people who needed, who had walked away from their faith and needed a major reawakening were coming, and people who had been longing for a church like this in New York City were coming. I wasn't the core. Yvonne sort of walked into the core. Um, I was on the periphery more being drawn in um, mm. by that that excitement and um, and obviously the teaching, which was um, enough to make you angry, which I think is significant, but enough <laughs> to make you have to wrestle. And, and let me interject because as a, I've been a believer since I was nine years old. Yeah. But the way that he preached and pricked the heart through the Holy Spirit was nothing short of amazing. I would go sit in the balcony at that first church because, you know, as a staff person, it's a whole different atmosphere of you're on duty. But I would go up in the balcony and weep mm. because mm. he was able to communicate the truth of the gospel to people like me, as well as to the, to the Catherines. <laughs> so that was, was in many ways so important because he changed all of us right. with how he preached. Right. Wow. But he was also um, geeky. <laughs> um, he, uh, to your point, Case, um, he, uh, he knew he needed to get to know New York better in order to preach New York. I think that's partly why he met with so many of us. Um, he did research. He met with people who um, weren't Christians. He met with um, the cardinals of the Catholic Church and the pastors of other churches. He was um, he he humbly recognized his suburban background was not um, preparing him for the dynamics of New York City and. And sought to do it. And I think we were all feeling that um, we responded to that humility and that um, des deep desire he had to learn mm -hmm. about us. And then he spoke to us and under pulled out the idols underneath our, <laughs> that we had been p basing our life on. Yeah. You mentioned the Cardinals of New York. It, we heard there at the funeral, right, that he was the first Protestant allowed to have a funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. Yes. Like, that is significant. That's significant. And Cardinal Dolan, uh, of whom I'm a big fan, uh, was present at the funeral, gave an opening word, and stayed the whole time. And I think that's a testimony to him as a person. Yes, the the, the respect and the, the mutual respect and the, um, uh, yeah, the partnership that they had um, as believers in the city, I think, mm, mm. was reflected in that. Well, and in Card Cardinal Dolan wrote a tribute that was published. Yes. And Beautiful said tribute. that Tim Keller had read more Catholic authors than he had. 
because of his open-mindedness and his willingness to cross some of those barriers. Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll put, we'll find that article and put it in our show notes for folks to go and enjoy. Now, Catherine, was Yvonne in your apartment there the night before? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, friends, the idea for this podcast came from the fact that um, when I get up to New York, I try to connect with Catherine and John, and I said, oh, let's get dinner. And she said, well, we're having a few friends over to the apartment. Stop by. So I stopped by. And let me tell you, it was one of the uh, top five uh, spiritual moments of my life. Uh, Friends, you've got to imagine this setting. It's an apartment with a living room filled with, I don't know, 25, 40 friends, people spilling over into the adjacent rooms. And And these are all folks who were there at the founding of the church and who many of whom served for decades on staff. And Catherine was MC and went around the entirety of the room and even into the other rooms where people were standing. It's like that scene of people trying to get in to see Jesus and just invited people to share. And folks told amazing stories of the earliest of days and of the challenges through the years and of the journey. And there was laughter, there were tears. And I kept thinking, what on earth? Am I doing in this room? Is I felt like such an interloper. And in fact, I don't know if you remember when you got to me in the circle. I went, "I'm from Orlando, and I'm supposed to be here. Keep moving." <laughs> but I just thank you for that gift. Yes. And and I think about like all y'all have read and seen in the wake of his death about his legacy. What's something we don't know or haven't really? Uh, what's something we don't know or haven't really heard about? What's not being said about him? You know, I think a lot of what you heard um, there were how dramatically these people's individual lives were changed and continued to be changed for decades after. Um, That's why there were um, thousands of people at St. Patrick's Cathedral. They weren't people that just admired him as an intelligent preacher, but yeah. people who really felt like his teaching changed their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but that group you saw were probably more personally acquainted with him than um, than people 25 years later. And um, some of them had been in his Bible study even before the first service. Some of them had been there in the first couple of years, some like me, um, hadn't been to church in decades and um, were or some came from a Catholic faith, some from a Jewish faith. So there were there was a wide range of mixes, uh, mix of people and um, a lot of different uh, beautiful stories. I think for those of us who were there in the beginning, he wasn't a hero then we were mm. we were I, th- I think he had a way of pointing to the gospel, not himself. And while we we were aware that he was giving us that in a in a particularly profound and compelling way, um, him as a person was a little geeky. So I wanted to point Yvonne to an early um, two things about the early years that I would like to point out. One is, you know, he, he was he lived in his head a lot, and he spent most of his time preparing sermons as 
you could tell from the quality of them. Um, so leading an organization was not his bent. And the good thing about that, I mean, there was a bit of chaos, but the growth of the church was organic. Mm. There was not a strategy. There was not a, you know, the plan for growing a church. It was um, unleash these young, energetic people to form a church that serves the city. Figure it out. And I think the mantra was, we're not a church for ourselves, we're a church for the city. So create things that... um, either in the faith and work side or the mercy and justice side that would change mm-hmm. and, um, and help and, and love and serve the city. You had your well, I'm sorry. I realized, I think I cut off your biography, uh, but finish that for us because you were a part of that chaos and helping to bring some order just so our listeners know your journey. I was part of that chaos. So one story I wanted to tell was that Yvonne was one of the people that was reeling me in and, you know, enabling me to be a friend as I um, was exploring the truth of what I was hearing. And one of the things she reeled me into was a comedy night. (laughs) And this was, of course, a totally organic, grassroots kind of a thing that involved 50 people at least. um, And hundreds of people came to it, including Tim and his family five little boys at that point, and his wife, Kathy. And there were some people that made incredible fun of Tim Keller. There was one guy, Ivan, you, you tell to you, the, uh, the um, Ellery's imitation of Tim preaching. What sort right. of room are we in? What's the setting? In the church. In the church. Oh, this was in like pews and, okay. Evening right, service. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, yeah. The West Side facility? Not, not a high production value. Okay. No. And, you know, the video we took is terrible quality, but it's all good because, but it was written by people from the church. Now, obviously you have actors and, and writers and people with real skill, yeah. but skits, including making fun of Tim Keller, including, you know, how he folded his Bible and his cheap suits and his, you know, scratching, scratching his, his head. head. <laughs> <laughs> His mannerisms. And he'd go up and down on his feet in the beginning. (laughs) I mean, you know, I don't know too many other people who would tolerate those kinds of things. Sure, sure, sure. The other crazy, and you know, like like I said, I got Catherine involved because she wasn't, she'd had a little bit of a background in musical theater and I knew she'd have some fun with it. And and she did. That's a new, we also, we also did a birthday celebration of him. I asked his mother to send me his childhood photos. We made a slideshow of his life and had a voiceover that was completely made up. It had no no connection to the real Tim Keller, just to make fun of him for his <laughs> birthday, where we presented him with a good suit <laughs> ah. <laughs> and, and a new Bible. <laughs> Wow. Anyway. Wow. But see, stuff like that was allowed. Not not only were people encouraged to be taking up leadership roles, leading small groups and starting ministries and using their gifts for the kingdom, but also some silly fun things like these comedy shows and things where we could be a family that, you know, people later on in the Redeemer years would have no idea that yeah. those kind yeah. of things that we did. Right. Now, you speak of leadership roles. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, 
Tim had a high regard for female leadership. And in a denomination that does not ordain women to the office of teaching and ruling elder, uh, what was that like, especially for you as women who had had careers and come from strong leadership backgrounds? You want to handle that one, Kath? Well, Yvonne was the first one. Um, (laughs) And for a long time, I think the only woman in Mm -hmm. a leadership role on the staff. Um, Mm -hmm. And she was, Yvonne was the great connector. once the church started growing that, you know, really helped pe- pull people in. Um, so she broke the ice there um, and, and really start, had a blank sheet of paper to start that ministry, mm-hmm. um, contextualized it. So one of the things that I always um, look back on and appreciate is um, a lot of, uh, a lot of professionals in New York, did not grow up in New York. They came to New York to make it. And so they didn't have deep roots. So her strategy contextualized to both the people of the church and the city was to find ministries to partner with and come alongside as opposed to start our own naively thinking we were the saviors of New York City. So um, I think that was an extremely critical, important move um, that she just had the freedom to do. I came along on, I, I was at Redeemer. I then moved to, I was still working in tech, running um, companies in the tech world. I moved to Luxembourg, then I moved to California. So I was gone in the later 90s and um, came back in early 2000, 2002, um, and was hired to start a faith and work ministry. So similarly, um, I had a blank sheet of paper um, and was able to just, I think I've often said to Tim, I think you would have been happy if I just ran a class on faith and work. And instead we built out this really exciting and powerful ministry um, in part because the demand was so great, but also people were looking to be involved. And it was a place that they could bring their skills from the marketplace and their gifts that um, the church wasn't using as an usher or as a communion giver and help them start um, running groups and classes and things that, um, that, you know, lay people in the congregation could take responsibility for. So, um, so that, I think that freedom we had um, was wonderful. Well, he hired great people that knew what they were doing and set them free. Sometimes I, maybe we were just lucky. <laughs> yeah. I think we, we were in, you know, God put us there in the place and time, but, but back to his view of women, I don't know that people really understand the partnership that Tim had with his wife, Kathy, that it was often her gifts that were, you know, you didn't necessarily see her up front, but her relationship, his value of women comes from the strengths and skills of his own wife, who is still heavily involved behind the scenes at Redeemer. And I think she paved the way for us because he had no qualms about allowing women to use their gifts. Sure. Like you said, in a denomination where the first time I went to a general assembly, (laughs) of the PCA was a little shocked at... (laughs) 
the general perception of the, using the gifts and skills of women in the church. But because I had Tim's complete blessing, I think Catherine would say the same thing. He just said, go make it happen. And we did. And that has been replicated. Both the faith and work movement and the sort of hope for New York movement replicated across the country, across the world, across denominations. Mm, and mm. he allowed us to do that in mm, some ways mm. that I think God is pleased. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You mentioned Kathy, and mm-hmm. I, I just met her once briefly, but I was so moved by her comments at the funeral service and mm-hmm. the sons that spoke. Talk to me about what you observed uh, with for Tim as a husband, Tim as a dad. Well, I think people would often remark that Tim's eyes would light up and his demeanor would change when Kathy called him on the phone. He was he loved her so deeply and appreciated her gifts and her support of him in ways that I wish every husband and wife could have that kind of gift. It was amazing. Um, we had a chance to go visit um, Kathy when we were in New York over Thanksgiving. And again, I'm sure this transition is very, very hard for her, but I also continue to see her involved with Kingdom Work at Redeemer through Gospel and Life and the other assignments that God has given her. Um, In terms of being a dad, most of us had the opportunity to babysit the Keller boys (laughs) (laughs) one time or another in those early days. And they were rambunctious little boys. (laughs) We all have lots of memories about them, which I don't think is the focus of this call. (laughs) But yes, again, they they would tell stories about their kids in the sermons and in in your interactions with them. Um, Moving from the suburbs into the city was not easy on their family. They made it work. Um, And the boys themselves can tell you what, what it meant to be on their own, riding the subway as, you know, teenagers in the city and how different that was than what they had grown up with in the early, early days. So. And I'll just add, um, in, by the time I got there in 2001, Kathy had had, was having a lot of health problems. Mm-hmm. So she had had to pull back from, um, coming to the office, being as involved on a day to day basis. Um, she had run communications for the first number of years um, of Redeemer and um, they wrote together and she was often his editor. So she was involved in things behind the scenes, but from a health perspective, I think that was a really hard time for them. Um, you know, I got there shortly after nine 11. So that was a hard time for the city as a whole and, um, with her health issues. And then at some point in there, he had thyroid cancer, cancer. And, um, so there, you know, there were, we don't want to paint a picture that certainly the first years were wonderful growth and, and God's protection. Um, a lot of people praying for God to protect this shoot of a church in its early life. But, um, but the early two thousands, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of challenge um, for Tim in his leadership role and for 
um, for them as a family with their health issues. Um, one of the things that I observed is um, his willingness to let God be sovereign over what was happening. So some notable things were um, sometimes somebody he invested a lot in would go leave and go to another church, usually giving or move out of town even. Um, and he's, you know, heartbroken, but he took a posture all the time of go to the church that God is leading you to, or um, he bless, He gave a blessing as people left, as opposed to um, wallowing in self-pity, which is what I would do in that circumstance. <laughs> um, it was, there was a generosity, and I know he was crushed often when people left, but there was a generosity and a trust in, if this is a church God is building, God will build the church. And um, he would steward it as best he could, but this was in God's hands. And um, so that's been and continues to be uh, an example for me in um, going through challenges, disappointments, frustrations. Take us, if you will, to a time when maybe both of you were present to one of those challenges Take us to a time when there was that growth challenge and what was, how did he manage it? How did he handle it? Maybe there was a, a growth challenge where y'all failed on something. <clears throat> what did you observe? Well, we didn't overlap on staff. Uh, okay. So, Other than as friends. <laughs> right. Over, as friends, we overlap, but not as, um, right. yeah. not on staff. So we probably have different stories. You want to go, Yvonne? I do. I, I Here's one that I can think of. He'd studiously avoided media appearances for years. He studiously avoided writing books. He wanted to invest in what we were doing without the distractions of answering media inquiries and it's and at some point, obviously, that changed. But I remember, you know, because in the early days, I was there in the office, and I knew about these people calling, wanting to sort of feature what we were doing. And, and they were very, very careful and deliberate about that. So at one point, I think God changed his mind and said, okay, let's try this. In fact, I think the first article that I saw published was actually published by the PCA. They had a magazine at one point and they published an article, you know, and I guess he thought it was safe because it was, you know, just our people, that sort of thing. But right after that was when the first New York Times article and they made that. And I can't remember the, the year it was, but. It was um, Michael Lua's article, I think. Yeah, you might remember better than I do, but I do I do recall that it's kind of like once that switch was went on, it changed the trajectory of what we were doing. Added some pressure, but also brought more people to the church. Um which I think was probably a good thing but also a challenge because then you had to deal with lots and lots of visitors that just wanted to sort of see how whether it was 
people of faith that were visiting New York and wanted to like oh, sure. check it out, or it was the curious non-believers who were like, huh, this looks interesting. So that that was an interesting, you know, unanticipated challenge, I think, in from my days. How did mm-hmm. he handle fame? I think it's it's an important question in this. Um he he was interviewed on the by Christianity Today on the Mars Hill podcast mm-hmm. after the whole yes. you know, after the whole series was done. They yeah. did an interview with him, yeah. and people were saying, "You know, how did you avoid? How you know, almost like how did you stay humble? How did you avoid getting caught up in the um, the power kind of?" Um, celebrity cult thing whatever you call it yeah, yeah. spiral and um and it, <laughs> typical tim he said well you know part of it's my personality i'm an introvert and i really i can't take much credit for it i just really wasn't interested <laughs> in who he is and yeah. you know I, I think that's true but i also think he had spiritual disciplines um he he admired john stott who used to you know really be steadfast in his um avoidance of praise and i think um tim was uncomfortable around praise um as a matter of fact when um when people wrote about him they this book that came out called the city the City for God, which is a, a tribute by a lot of people. Can you see that? Um, yeah. A tribute. Nice. Yeah, you can hold, you can do it, send something out about it later. But it's specifically about how people's um, work was influenced by Tim's um, teaching of, about the faith, as opposed to about Tim in particular, because he really avoided didn't want to point to him. And you could see that in his service case. You know, he wanted to point to Christ, not not to him. And um, so I think he was very disciplined about um, just avoiding the temptation mm. or responding to the temptation um, with in prayer in he would say in conversations with his wife who, you know, could take him down a few pegs. <laughs> so, <laughs> he, 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 he was, it wasn't just his personality. He took concrete intentional steps to avoid it. Mm, mm, mm. And as Yvonne said, you know, people were begging him in the early nineties to go on the radio or on television. And he was like, no, 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 I'm not looking. I'm looking to create a church here that serves the city. Right. You know, right. we really don't have any good examples of that. This is going to take my first full attention. And I think that was helpful too. For our listeners, especially leaders, there are always professional goals that are left unmet, even organizational goals left unmet. So uh, were there any dreams of his personally or through the church that never unfolded? Oh, I'm sure. Um we all wish he had another 20 years. Right. Um, and while he had, um, he worked very hard to transition the church from a church that was dependent on him to one that had, now there's, you know, four, almost five churches that are 
led by other pastors that he, most of whom he groomed in some way. And for folks that may not be familiar, he actively worked to take the mothership and break it into those four different independent churches. Yeah, I mean, he never wanted a big church. He always tried to have churches spin off and become um, church, you know, smaller churches of their own. But when you're as good a preacher as he is, it was hard to, you can't tell people not to come. But certainly for almost ten, eight years prior to um, him stepping down as senior pastor, he was very diligent about trying to have the church break into four. And um, so obviously COVID took a toll on that, but I think all of them are strong, solid churches that are going to continue to serve with the focus on being a church for the city, not for themselves. Um, focus on the power of the gospel to change their lives, people's lives and their relationships um, and the city. So I think, you know, we call it the DNA of Redeemer is deeply embedded in those churches, even as those pastors step down and new pastors take over. So, uh, but God is sovereign. So um, Tim would be the first one to say, I did what I could do. and. Um, God's in charge of the rest. I think the loss, I mean, I feel obviously a personal loss when um, even after I was no longer employed by him, I was serving, advising, speaking in certain different ways. But when I would have some question, I'd run across some denominational debate over something that concerned me, I could write him and say, can you give me a perspective on this? can I, you know, I'm learning people, people are talking about Christian humanism. Would you help me point me to the best resources to read up on that? Um, I, I think the loss um, for the world grieves me as much as my own loss, um, that he had reached a point where he could lift his head up from a daily ser- service and, and being responsible for a church, to being able to um, meet with leaders throughout the city and um, thought leaders in all kinds of fields. He did invest in them in the last few years, but oh my goodness, what could have been done with another 20 years? So um, he, you know, he partnered with Jonathan Haidt in doing talks of the importance of God or the righteous mind, you know, Tim giving his thoughts on that. He co-wrote a book with Johnny Nazu, who's a lawyer, who's a strong influencer in the area of living as a Christian in a pluralistic society. And he was moving in that direction of greater um, influence in the public square that, you know, God's sovereign, but seems to me we would have really benefited if he'd been around another 20 years. Mm, mm. So that's addition, in addition to the personal loss. Mm. Yvonne? Catherine said it all. <laughs> <laughs> in case I wanted to go back, to, I didn't really respond to the um, 
some of the struggles. So um, at one, one particular time, we had hired a executive pastor because, you know, once the church grew, this was not that was not a good investment of Tim's preaching gifts to have him be the person that was running the organization of the church. So we were all psyched up. This guy was going to come and last minute he pulled out. And um, I think that was a time of one of the times I just saw desperation and me, you know, a conversation between us of me saying, um, you know, Tim, unfortunately the bus bus, the buck stops there with you and you know, you're going to have to change your plan for the next six months until this is over. And, you know, it can, I can relate to the pain of what that was like. So, Mm. but we, you know, eventually got somebody and all worked out. But Mm. Well, last question. So for any pastors that may be listening, we can't all be Tim Keller, the orator, for sure. Uh, we can't all write such books or grow such institutions or have such legacy and impact. What would you say to pastors today are something they can emulate from who he was as a shepherd? I would say letting the gifts of your people be set free. Clearly seen in both of your work and Center for Faith and Work and Hope for New York. I think he opened our imagination to what a church could be and what loving a city could look like. And um, so that area of vision in church leadership I think is so important. And so if you are equipping people to have a bigger vision and you're giving us the the faith grounding to move out humbly and lovingly with that vision, I think that um, the congregation can surprise you with what God will do through them. Um, somewhere along the line early on, and I think it probably drew me to his church in the beginning, what he talked a lot about, um, the church is a priesthood of all believers. And, um, we are to be equipped to go out and be the church in the world. And, um, I think Yvonne and I both do some coaching and teaching pastors on the importance of that and, and how to go about it. Um, today, I think it's a passion that both of us have in our different um, aspects of that vision. Yvonne, any closing words? Oh, this was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, Catherine and I have have done a lot of talking about these issues over the years um, in our personal conversations. And I think we both feel incredibly um, fortunate that we were there in the right place in the right time, that the Holy Spirit could use us and could help expand the kingdom and could be a small part of the legacy that Tim had and the gift that he was to the world. And I think we still, and all everyone you saw gathered at that service case, uh, I think we still feel that call to um, 
in in essence be um, stewarding what we were given to um, help other churches thrive, to um, serve in what the capacities, even um, at different stages and ages in life, uh, to serve in whatever capacities um, we can. Um, I think with a lot deeper grounding um, than we could ever, well, I just don't know how we would do without it. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, Yvonne, thank you. Thank you so very much for this peek into your lives, into his life, and um, for the uh, life and witness of Tim Keller. Thanks be to God. Thank you for this opportunity. I'd like to thank our listeners uh, for being with us again. Please share, like, and subscribe so others can enjoy. You can visit us at collaborativeorlando.com. Sign up for our biweekly blog. See some of the resources we have there about living your faith in the public square. We're also all over the social media channels. Uh, Again, look in those uh, uh, notes so that you can get links to the various things we've talked about. There's also a great new article that features Yvonne Sawyer and her work in Common Good magazine that we'll put there. Uh, Listen for Formed for Faithfulness, our weekly devotional podcast, and I'll be back next time with a special guest. I want to thank the sponsor for this episode, the Magruder Foundation, helping us make things happen. Hope to see you next time on our episode of Nuance and uh, Blessings as you pursue faithfulness to Christ in the public square.